The modernising defence programme is underway. But most importantly, understanding the threats and the ever-changing threats that this country faces. The way in which this statement has been arranged by the government has been shambolic from start to finish. Could a British Army Brigade stay on in Germany? And Davos, what's it all about? The Defence Secretary has updated the Commons on the government's modernising defence programme. Gavin Williamson has given more details to MPs in a statement this morning. This programme will involve four strands of work. The first three will optimise how the MOD is organised and is operating, identify further efficiencies and ways to be more productive, including through an aggressive programme of business modernisation and improve our performance on the commercial and industrial issues. The fourth strand will look at the capabilities that defence requires to contribute to our three national security objectives today and in the future. But most importantly, understanding the threats and the ever-changing threats that this country faces. Well, let's talk to Sky's defence correspondent, Alistair Bunkle, as well as our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Uh, Alistair Bunkle, has this gone from a modest review to potentially the largest review of UK armed forces in a decade? Well, I'm not sure about in a decade. It's always been a larger review than I think anybody uh, would publicly admit, even when it sat as part of the National Security Review and was being overseen by Mark Sedwill. The impression you would have got, or the impression the MOD would have liked to have given, was that it, defence was just part of uh, a much bigger and wider review, which included intelligence agencies, border security, etc., which it was. But I think, actually, this has been a far deeper look into defence in 2018, 2017, 2018, than anybody expected when the review was launched. Now that it's been spun off, we're almost going to start all over again. So, yeah, I think you probably mm. can compare it to recent defence reviews. Whether it will be quite as dramatic, the outcome will be quite as dramatic as it was in 2010, I'm, I'm not sure. And how much of this uh, starting all over again is to do w with us having a new defence secretary, Gavin Williamson, and him being new to the job? He's ambitious, that's for sure. And I think he's pretty clear that he and his time as defence secretary will be judged on the outcome of this review. And his peers, his other Tory MPs, who are all slightly sceptical about whether or not he's up to the job, they will also defend, uh, they will judge him on how he does out of this. So if he wins more money for defence, then I think he'll be judged favourably. If he doesn't, the opposite will happen. Getting the review spun off and bring it in-house, so it's not being done by the National Security Advisor and the Cabinet Office, but it's being done by the MOD, and getting more time, that's an early win for him, for sure. Mm. Reading today about the, the naming of what this, this defence review is, um, yeah. a lot of arguments about that. What have you learnt about that? Does it really matter, even? What do you think? I, mean, I, I read it sort of this morning, the papers, with slight, slightly perplexed. I mean, you know, he really gives a damn what it's called. It, it's what it does. And it was, well, it's not a review, strictly, because apparently the Cabinet Office didn't like that. 
it was going to be called the Defence Modernisation Programme, but DMP could also stand for Debt Management Programme or something, which obviously you know, didn't give the right impression. So mm. now it's done the Modernising Defence Programme. But if you say modernising, you're suggesting somehow that the armed forces are out of date and in need of modernisation. So that doesn't sit well with people. I, I mean, it, that kind of sort of... Um, we'll just call it know, getting debate. it right, shall we? Getting it right for defence, uh, maybe. Just, <laughs> yeah, it's just distracting. And it gets you off on the bad foot, on the wrong foot from the word go. Mm. And it, it doesn't really matter either way. It's about what the outcome is. Christopher Lee. I tell you what, um, defence review in a newspaper is 1436-point Godoni broke whatever across two columns. It will be known as the defence review. And whatever title you might give it officially and on, on, on the cover when you get it, it is still, as far as everybody's concerned, it's defence for you. We know mm. what we're talking about. There's a couple of points here, really. Um, Mrs um, May has always wanted, that is since the, the defence talks at uh, Chequers two days before New Year's Eve, uh, a big speech for July at the NATO summit. Very important that she should show, not necessarily just NATO, but more importantly, the EU, that Britain's defence focus was in So you Europe. think the timing is very convenient? Well, I just think that, you know, you see which way it was going, and that was fine. And she'll mention it, you know, at Davos, and, uh, et cetera. So, so I don't think we should worry. When, uh, when the new defence secretary arrives, uh, he, he made a point. Listen, you're going to do all this? I've only just got a grip of this. I've now got to a point, that, for example, or recommended the Prime Minister, a new a Chief of the Defence Staff, who's got to run with this for three years. We've got a lot to get right, because if we cock this up, you remember what happened before with, with the public sort of attitude towards the whole thing. And finally, his, Williamson's attitude here is, is, is peculiar uh, to the previous three Defence Secretaries. In fact, you have to go all the way, really, back to uh, Michael Heseltine as Defence Secretary for this. It's not how much you spend, it's what you spend it on. Mm. And the other thing he says, and the thing he's been told, and the thing that Carter hasn't told him, uh, but he has heard Chief from... Chief of the General Staff. Yeah, but he has heard from uh, General Messenger, the Royal Marine, and, and that is, you have to remember, uh, uh, Secretary of State, that you, you've got big equipment... You can't just change it because you think the threat has changed or it's budged or it's gone around the other way. An aircraft can carry can be around for 35 years. It only has two, two different type, squadrons of types of, uh, types of aircraft, etc. And so he is learning things which he, think, which he didn't know that he had to learn. And so he's going, it ties very much uh, in with what happens in July at the NATO conference. Well, today's statement by the Defence Secretary was originally due last night. Let's hear what the Shadow Defence Secretary, Neil Griffith, had to say about that. The way in which this statement has been arranged by the government has been shambolic from start to finish. And so, utterly discourteous to honourable and right honourable members, some of whom may be elsewhere today because of explicit and repeated assurances by the government that this statement would come on Monday. Oh, Alistair Bunkle, shambolic from start to finish, as she said, does, doesn't really bode well for the review, does it? But it makes it interesting for your job, hey? Um, yeah, it makes it sometimes hard to know where you need to be at any particular time. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I was down at the start of the deep cutting quest yesterday. And um, I, so, I mean, I, first thing in the morning yesterday, you're told it's going to be after PMQs. 
then it gets pushed back till 7 p.m. Then it gets pushed back till next week at some point, you know, date to be confirmed. And then this morning I got told, actually, it's happening today around 11.30. Uh, you know, and the last question you asked me was about what what, what we're going to call this re- this review, sorry, this defence modernisation then, Mark, programme. And then, then there was a telephone call from over the road from Mark Siddle's office who says, oh, no, you can't do it that way because it's exactly what happened. And somebody said, no, we're going to have... And so we've got the PUS and we've got Siddle's office actually eyeballing each other on something. When would be the announcement? Well, you've only got to say that's the announcement, then you can get on with it. Everybody goes, so goes heads, da- heads down into work now, Alistair. We also, interestingly, I should say, we all knew this was coming as well. It's not like it was a particular secret. Yeah. CGS in his speech at Rusi mm. said it as well and let the cat out of the bag officially. So, again, a completely unnecessary sort of flip-flopping uh, about an announcement, which which just makes everybody look a little bit incompetent and mm. is unnecessary. But, yeah, I mean, back down to work and, um, you know, as journalists, we'll be trying to, you know, wheedle out exactly what they're looking at and what might happen or what might not happen. I mean, a word, I mean, I think a word in, in the defence, in defence of defence journalists, uh, you know, the breadth uh, of the country, I, I'm not sure we would be here right now if it had not been for the uh, the headlines about potential severe cuts to various parts of the military, particularly the amphibious fleet and the Royal mm. Marines, which in turn has kind of chivied um, some politicians to really sort of hold government to account. Uh, and we are now where we are. And I think that probably is, a, a, is in some small way a victory mm. for, for defence journalism, but also the politicians who have decided to get behind it and make sure the government was not allowed to force through those cuts. All right, Alistair Bunker, we'll leave it there for now. Thank you for your time today. Well, Alistair did mention that speech by the CGS this week and the head of the army says plans to pull British troops out of Germany could be partially reversed in response to a growing threat from Russia. General Sinek Carter says he's looking at whether to retain a base in Germany to allow for a faster deployment to Eastern Europe if needed. Here he is speaking at the Royal United Services Institute. We are actively examining the retention of our infrastructure in Germany where we store our vehicles in Ayrshire Barracks in Rheindahlen and our training facilities in Senelaga, as well as our heavy equipment transporters that are based there and our stockpiling and ammunition storage. Well, earlier, Colonel Bob Stewart quizzed the Defence Secretary about it in the Commons. Sir Nick Carter on Monday, as CGS stated, that the Russians could go to war far faster than we thought previously. Could I ask my right honourable friend if he would allow consideration and some support for leaving, say, a brigade in Germany so that we are closer to where the battles may well be. Um, we're, we're very much looking forward at that option because we need to ensure that forces that are either further, even further east have the ability to be properly resupplied and supported. Well, I'm joined by Elizabeth Braw, Associate Fellow at the Atlantic Council. Good to speak to you today, Elizabeth. What did you make of what the Chief of the General Staff said? Well, it makes complete sense when when uh, the threat scenario changes as it, as it clearly uh, is now. Then it makes sense to to return to Germany, which is um, let's say a much more central location than the UK in in Europe. Christopher, how many troops is he talking about? Do you think? Oh, Bob Stewart is saying like, you leave a brigade there, you know, three thousand guys. It's nothing to do with that at all. It, it it's not how many troops you put in; it is the structure that you leave. And so you first thing you say to the Germans, because you know they would want to know, were you thinking of actually uh, leaving 
our brigade, which is there already in the structure of that brigade, say like like twenty brigade, uh, is that okay? Because there's a you know there's politics going on in Germany, and that has 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 a reply to it. And there also is the point: is can you afford to do it, or would you afford to do it? But the thing is, you you put if you like the gear. It's like even leaving. This is a terrible thing to say. It's like leaving a car at the station. It gets you home when you need it, and that is exactly what it is. So you could bring all the guys back except for a maintenance lot, but you leave the structure so when you go, you've got all the heavy equipment, stuff that you couldn't get there for weeks and weeks if you brought it back to the United Kingdom. That's what we're talking about. It's a, it's an idea that came up first, I think, in the 1970s, and you had a thing called Pomkus. And it was it was a forward positioning, pre-positioning of all your all your equipment makes an enormous amount of sense. It doesn't also the other thing it doesn't do, it doesn't lift the tension, it it doesn't doesn't disturb the diplomacy. You mean easier to leave them there than to put troops in somewhere? Well, you haven't got that many, you see. Hmm. I mean, to keep, keep to keep even a full brigade in Germany, uh, you probably need a, a brigade and a half at the very, very least just to have a turnover. But most importantly, it just doesn't disturb the the diplomacy of European politics. Elizabeth Braw, how much is this partial reversal of drawdown from Germany purely symbolic? Do you think? Well, this clearly symbolic because it, if you wanted to make a big difference, <laughs> he, well, uh, the the MOD would have to put a, a lot of their their uh, few remaining soldiers or many of their few remaining soldiers in Germany. But, but I think what what is really important is, well, as you said, the symbolic aspect and also the fact that just by having uh, British and, and in this case German soldiers. Um, uh, operate together on a daily basis. You increase interoperability, uh, familiarity w- between the two uh, forces, and uh, and that counts uh, as well. When you do you think, think about do you think the, that will be even more? Do you think that? Sorry to interrupt. Do you think that may be even more important uh, going forward when the UK leaves the European Union? I absolutely think so. And, and uh, going back just uh, over the past generation or so, when. Uh, when you talk to, to British uh, soldiers and officers who have been based in Germany, they are completely committed to the idea of, of uh, NATO forces operating together. So it's, it sort of binds them together, even if the numbers are small, as they will be in the future. It's, um, it's important in, in just a, a military operational sense, yeah, as it, well it, as a political sense. The important thing is that the British and the German soldiers do operate anyway together, and they, they exercise together and they have procedures. They have uh, command post exercises on a monthly basis, so they know that. The biggest problem, in fact, when you get forces operating together, say German and British or German and Danish or whatever, is do the bits and pieces come together? So you get a British tank goes up and it runs out of fuel, right? And along comes a German Bowser with a load of fuel on board. Mm. However, does the connection work between the German bit of kit and the and, and the British tank that wants juicing. Uh, what happens when you want to land an aircraft? Have you got the same facilities? And does it help leaving stuff in Germany in that respect? It would. It, it would. It would. It, it would mean that you move more and more, and we have moved a long way, to having common things, simple things such as a fitting on the side of the tank and a nozzle from a German oil bowser that actually go together. These are the things that eventually lose wars. All right, we'll leave it there for now. Elizabeth Braw, Associate Fellow at the Atlantic Council, thank you for your time today. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, the threat from the frozen north, why Britain's thinking seriously about Arctic defence, and a UN report says its peacekeepers should be allowed to fight back. 
Well, this week, the head of the army also warned in his speech that Russia now represents a clear and present danger. With that in mind, MPs are holding an inquiry into the rapidly changing defence landscape in the Arctic. They've heard evidence from a number of experts. Here's one of them. I'm Professor Eric Grove. I'm an independent uh, naval analyst and historian. And I've just been speaking to the, to the Arctic subcommittee of the House of Commons Defence Committee. Well, in terms of the defence of the Atlantic, the Atlantic lifelines, as they used to be called, NATO discovered uh, in the 1980s that the best way of keeping the Soviet Navy on the defensive was to move north of the Arctic Circle into the fjords around Vestfjord, Anfjord, etc., take the aircraft carriers in there and sort of force the Soviets to attack them in, this bas in these defended bastions and also to move forward into the Barents Sea to threaten, uh, threaten Soviet ballistic missile firing submarines. Now we're thinking of possible confrontation with Russia again. We're, we're having to rethink, could we do the same kinds of things with the assets available? So Arctic security is firmly connected to Atlantic security. If we properly fund what, we, what, what, what we're going to get, two aircraft carriers, aircraft and helicopters on board, re-engine the Type 45 anti-air warfare destroyers, improve the anti-submarine skills of the anti-submarine frigates, maintain the availability of nuclear-powered submarines, then Britain might provide the core, perhaps even, of a NATO force with other European allies, the local Norwegians, and whatever the Americans can send over after they've dealt with their Asian pivot. I agree with the CGS entirely. The only problem is he put it naturally in terms of the army. Now, it means we need to improve the high-level fighting skills of the army, improve their, the armoured forces, etc., to deal with the Russians or help, de help deal with the Russians. But it isn't just a land thing. This is a maritime thing. It's an air thing. And island nations need powerful maritime forces and air forces, even more than they need soldiers. So if Britain wants to make, I think, its proper contribution to the security of the alliance and to help contain Russian power, then it's at sea on the northern flank, which is ought to be the centrepiece of our strategy. We had the Norwegian defence attaché there, and he made the point that the Norwegians, although they don't feel they're in confrontation with Russia, they don't want to get into confrontation by maintaining a strong defence and a strong relationship with their allies. Um, we had, uh, we looked at the submarine situation, of course, because you know, submarines would be the front line in any kind of uh, campaign against Russian submarines and I looked at what we did in the late 80s by putting carriers forward, putting them into fjord bastions, engaging in forward anti-submarine operations and so on, forcing the Russians to think about attacking us uh, in conditions where, where we were strong rather than surging forces out into the Atlantic and attacking the Atlantic lifelines. Britain is, has historically been the second major naval contributor to NATO after the United States. Britain is a northern flank country. If you see the world from Scotland, you're a long way north, close connections with Norway. So it is a vital part of Britain's national security that we push a forward defence of the northern flank up to and beyond the Arctic Circle to, to stop the Russians coming into our, our own waters and interfering with us in ways that, we'd, that we wouldn't like. That was Professor Eric Grove. Now, the United Nations says 56 of its peacekeepers were killed in 2017, the highest number of deaths through violence since 1994. It's published a report suggesting a change in the way 
peacekeepers use force while in dangerous environments. It argues that the blue helmet and UN flag no longer offer natural protection for UN forces. So should UN troops be allowed to fight back or even in some cases strike first? Mike Evans is the former Pentagon correspondent for The Times and joins us now. Hello, Mike. Uh, You spent a lot of time with UN troops in the past. Um, What exactly would be changing in your view if the, the ideas of this report were assumed? Um, I mean, I think it sounds a little bit unrealistic. I mean, they, obviously, the uh, UN peacekeepers have the right to self-defense. That's sort of the basic rules of engagement. But they also have the rules to protect, the rules of engagement to protect their mission. So if their mission as a whole, the area where they are operating, is, is comes under attack, they are allowed to respond. But it's all a question of interpretation. And I think the idea of this new report is that they should go on the offensive more than just be defensive. I'm I'm not sure that's going to work, partly because a lot of the UN peacekeepers go on these missions without being adequately uh, equipped. And I think to take on an offensive role would be highly risky. But when you put into the mix that they're having to deal with things like counter-terrorism when they go on missions now, do you think that is a change in the way they are expected to act or it should be changed in respect of that? I, I think so, because, you know, the peace, peacekeeping business has, has evolved over the years. And as you say, there's counter-terrorism now. Um, they need to be better trained. They need to be better equipped. And they need to be able to be more forceful. But I think, you know, um, it, it is correct to say that the light blue helmet is no longer the sort of uh, red cross, if you like, you know, don't touch us. Mm. Um, I don't think terrorists uh, mind what color the, the helmet is. But but I mean, so, but they need, there needs to be a lot more training for this sort of operation. Christopher Lee, you say that this is a change from peacekeeping to peacemaking. What do you mean exactly now, by that? I think what I mean, one of the things that, if you read this report, one of the things that is in it is is the function of the so-called peacekeeper. Peacekeeper goes, and the idea is he arrives, uh, they settle down, and they're asked to look after an agreement. They never go unless one. The, a country whose territory they're landing on say please come and the second thing so they guess so the second thing is that unless there's some sort of arrangement of peace they don't go into a battlefield and try and sort that out what is the next stage from this is what is part of the suggestion is that the peacekeepers should have a more an aggressive role now if you sending your troops and they're usually sent as a government send they're not just collected all together so you've got a mixture of countries uh, you're not going to let your country get involved in trying to straighten out and even taking part in a shooting uh, with another country because you're disturbing all sorts of international qualifications they have. Mm. I tell you, Boutros Boutros Ghali was, uh, was a United Nations Secretary General, and he wanted to have a standing United Nations force that would be able to go in, would be trained, would be financed, would be have its own transport. I remember on one peacekeeping operation, and the country sort of more or less rang up and said, do you think you can get us to this other country? Because mm. we don't have any aeroplanes to take the guys. Mike Evans, um, Chris was talking about how you wouldn't want your troops getting involved in, in other countries' conflicts and problems, but this report author is also saying peacekeepers have a moral obligation to intervene when, for example, civilian lives are at risk, contrary to what happened in Rwanda and Srebrenica. That, that would be a game-changer, wouldn't it? It would, and I tend to agree with that. I think uh, it, having spent a lot of time 
For example, in Bosnia, where the UN peacekeepers, they, they didn't go in as peacekeeping, they went, as, went in as escorts to humanitarian aid. But of course, they were surrounded every day by the most appalling civilian abuses, and they didn't intervene. They shouted, but they didn't intervene physically um, because they weren't allowed to. Uh, I think that is uh, quite extraordinary. So how today. do you actually work that out then? Because you can't predict what's going to happen when you put peacekeepers into a country. Uh, do you have movable rules that can change by the hour, by the day? Well, no. I mean, every mission, every peacekeeping mission has, has its own rules of engagement. And uh, normally, and you'd respect them regardless? Well, yes, unless the rules are changed or unless they're sufficiently flexible to allow you to take action. But in Bosnia, they certainly weren't. They, they, they didn't intervene in any of these uh, appalling abuses. The first uh, uh, peacekeeping force, UN peacekeeping force, was, uh, was deployed, I think it was 1948. And one of the ways of operating, say, on the Golan Heights or, or on that area, was to do a daily report back to the UN centre. And that's why the rules of engagement might be changed. Mm. But the most important thing is to make sure you didn't get into taking sides. And that is the huge difficulty. When you throw into the mix, Mike Evans, that perhaps the quality of the soldier that's recruited for these peacekeeping duties might be questionable. We've seen allegations of sexual violence against women, for example, in some countries. How on earth do you deal with the situation then? I, I think it's uh, appallingly difficult. They, they, you know, they appeal for a peacekeeping contribution from all the nations. Uh, a lot of nations... Quite some nations are very keen on this sort of thing, and they contribute their 200 or their 3,000 or whatever it is. Um, but um, a lot of them are inadequately trained, and a lot of them have uh, uh, are, are ill-disciplined as well, I'm afraid to say. And so there have been some appalling abuses in places like Central African Republic and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, and uh, And these abuses and corruption is one of the endemic parts, unfortunately, of the UN peacekeeping role. All right, we'll leave it there for now. Mike Evans, thank you very much for your time today. Now, President Trump has arrived in Davos today for the World Economic Forum. But what is it? Why do world leaders, millionaires and even celebrities go to the Swiss ski resort every year? And what do they talk about, Christopher? Right, 3,000 key delegates. Uh, if you're and these people who run the world or think they do, so we've got people from down from the United States, president, heads of government, billionaires, Google man, you know, sort of Facebook man, and also celebrities. And they say, well, what are they there for? They're just sort of, you know tarting up the place. No, they're not. A lot of celebrities. Your words. What? <laughs> Your words. Go on. What do you want me to say? <laughs> no, go on. Carry no, on. <laughs> a, a, a lot of celebrities take on things. They take on, for example, uh, landmines. They take on uh, in, in sort of areas in Africa and other places that people don't want to go. And so you've got refugees that are being highlighted by these people. And so they go, they listen, they talk, they do the networking. And so it becomes extraordinarily important. Uh, they sit there for a couple of days and they listen to the, the supposedly the, the world leaders saying... And in my view, so listening to speakers telling everybody what they want to hear. You know, you're, we're doing a great job here, we can do a bit more there, whatever. Mm. But big issues do come. For Christine Lagarde, who is the, uh, the World Bank or World or, um, Financial Fund or money fund, Monetary Fund, uh, she's saying yesterday, listen, the world is with the young. Unless we get it right for the young, we're going to have sort of, sort of problems. People will go back 
to their organisations and their governments. But no big decisions come out of it. How important is it for defence? Uh, I think it's important for defence in all sorts of ways. One is that people be, people get to talk in the margins about big decisions that got to be made. They don't ne- negotiate in your contract for an F-35, but they do say, we understand, my people do actually do understand, for example, why the United Kingdom cannot be too bossy about what's happening in Yemen because you've got big defence contracts with Saudi Arabia. They also say, this is what we are planning to do if you're Google or or. or or, or, or something even bigger. And this is what we're thinking about in the future. And something you said yesterday in that in that meeting, that dinner or whatever, makes me think, don't put Davos any more than that. But quite often that's but all we've actually got. But deals are not got. necessarily done, but at least the nobody, thinking is put down. Nobody, There are no gold pen affairs, as the Americans call them, at Davos. But a lot of people do listen and quite often they listen with in a wholly different atmosphere. It must be all the snow because, I mean, what they do, they lock themselves away uh, and they just talk and they think. And it's a, it's a great place to be. What kind of messages about British defence do you think people should be putting out at Davos? I think if I were putting out one message at Davos is gradually putting this idea, which I think that the Prime Minister wants to get across and is failing to do so, and that is the future of British defence is probably not worldwide but it's European-based. And when you think that's where it, modern British European modern British defence started, and that is two world wars, uh, that's why the, the, you know, the thought of the EU was all about there should never be a world war again. And so I think that that is going to be the theme of British defence. And all that means, and it means it in financial terms, but more importantly, it means in rethinking. And though people that you're thinking about the world... And that is all we have time for this week. Do check our video on Forces News Facebook page and send us your comments. Or you can tweet us at BFBS SITREP and subscribe to the show as a podcast. From me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Bye-bye. The best of British news, sport and entertainment. For the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.